Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church, continuing in our discipleship series through Luke 9. The title of the message this morning is The Valley of Ego. They came off the mountain into the Valley of Ego. Please enjoy. Luke chapter 9. One of the things that uh, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to plan some long-term preaching for the future. Now that I, I have time uh, to do that, and uh, I was by the way into my first week full time here at the church, uh, got a lot done. I'll tell Miss Ava this morning. There's seems like there's still not enough hours in the day to get done with everything you want to get done. But that's I guess that's like that everywhere you go. Um, but now that I have time to plan and organize out my preaching, I'm going to do that. But that's still in the works. I'm still planning on some long-term stuff. And so while that's in the works, we're going to finish out Luke 9. Because I'm just continuing to read this chapter. And the rest of the chapter flows with what Jesus told the disciples at the beginning of the chapter. And so we're going to finish Luke 9 with this idea of discipleship in mind. With that uh, in our minds, let's stand in Luke chapter 9. We're going to stand and read one verse. We'll pray and then sit back down. Luke chapter 9, we're just going to read one verse, verse number 37. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. That's a profound statement. You may think it's just a passing statement, but that statement means something. On the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. The title of the message this morning is The Valley of Ego. The Valley of Ego. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would be with us today. I pray that you'd be with the preaching of the Word of God. I pray that you'd be with our hearts and minds. Let us clear those things out to make room to focus only on the Scripture, to focus only on you, and to accomplish your goal and your will in our lives. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, this morning. Be with us today as we study the Scripture. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. May be seated. I remember going to Lookout Mountain this past year in Chattanooga, and uh, one of the things that I love to do is the incline. Now, the first time I took my wife on the incline was on our honeymoon, and we started at the top of the mountain. So when you get in that train at the top, it's very steep. You're looking straight down, and so she was. She said she didn't like that very much. And didn't want to go back. And uh, so this past year we went back, but this time we started at the bottom. And it's a little bit nicer when you start at the bottom because you're just kind of sitting back. You're kind of looking up a little bit. And as the train goes up the side of Lookout Mountain, it gets steeper and steeper and steeper until you get to the top. And it's quite an experience if you've never done it before. So we got out of the incline train and we went to the top of the observation deck and looked out over the Tennessee Valley, looked out over Chattanooga. We tried to find our hotel. We lived in a big hotel, but man, from up there, that hotel just looked so tiny. It took us a minute to find the hotel. 
But then we did something that I've never done before in my life. There's also on top of the mountain, there's a place called the Battles for Chattanooga Park. It's four blocks down the road. We went outside, we took a right, and we walked four blocks to the park. It took less than 10 minutes to walk to the park. Now, if you're a history buff and if you like Civil War history, which I really am, and when I come around that stuff, I want to stop, I want to read it, I want to soak it in. This was a wonderful experience. You go out into the park and it's a panoramic view of all of the valley. I mean, you see all of Chattanooga. You see the Tennessee River winding through the city. The, the, it's just the, only, the park is on the edge of a cliff. You're surrounded by on all three sides just this view. And you go through and you read all the, all the engravings and the monument. And one thing special about the monument at Battles for Chattanooga Park is the only Civil War monument that's dedicated to both Union and Confederate forces. And so it's the only one. So that was very cool. And so you go out and, you, you know, the boys were playing around the cannons. They had the cannons on the rocks facing out towards the city. And you could sit on the rock and dangle your legs off. And it looked like you were, you were dangling over the edge of the cliff, but there was ground under it. There wasn't. Uh, there wasn't just a drop off. And uh, so another thing that you go around the, on the side of the cliff, on the side of the cliff, there's this, uh, this stone uh, a Civil War fort still standing, and they converted it into a museum. Now, this, is, this stuff is right up my alley. I love this kind of stuff. I, I live for this kind of stuff. And so you, go, you see the fort, and you go in, you check out the museum, and man, we had a good time. We really didn't want to leave. But the time, the time came, we had to go. We had other stuff we had to do. We had other places we had to be. We had other people we had to see. And so the time came where we had to leave that park. We had to go to the train. We had to go back down to the bottom of the mountain because it was time for us to go. Now, Jesus, we've talked about this last week. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 and then he begins to explain the difference between the people who are here just for the free fish, those here just for the free filet of fish sandwiches, and then just the difference between those people and the people who wanted to actually be close to him. The people who wanted to pay a price to be close to him. And Jesus gave a recipe for the preparation of discipleship. And this, this whole kind of mini-series of messages is about preparing yourself to become a disciple of Christ. And he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We talked about that last week. And Jesus said, if you do this, I will give you a reward. Well, eight days later, Jesus showed us what a little bit of that reward looks like. See, eight days later, he took Peter and James and John, he took them on top of a mountain to show them a little bit of this reward, just to give them a little preview of what's waiting on them. And that on the top of that mountain is called the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, let me say this. A little side note here. The disciples who were closest to Jesus got to see Jesus in a new way. And this is the same true with us. 
See, the closer you are to Jesus, the, be- the more relationship you have with Jesus, the more he reveals himself to you. And so many people say, well, Jesus, when you decide to reveal yourself to me more, then I'll follow you more closely. And that's not how this works. That's not how this works. You see, what happens is, is you follow Jesus more closely and then he reveals himself to you in a new way. And the disciples that were following Jesus the closest got to experience Jesus in a new way. So they go on top of the Mount of Transfiguration and things happen. His face begins to shine and his clothes becomes, become white as light and the glory is just coming off of Jesus and Jesus is transformed and standing in front of Jesus' two men, Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets and Jesus came to fulfill both. And then we hear a voice from heaven, the voice of God the Father, and He speaks out from the heavens, and He says, this is the chosen one. Listen to Him, solidifying that this isn't just a mere prophet. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. It is time. He is here. Man, I don't know about you, but man, could you just imagine being there? Man, just a wonderful experience, just a great mountain moment. And let me tell you something, if I was on top of that mountain with Jesus Christ transforming and transfiguring and I got to see him in all his glory, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to leave. And Peter didn't want to leave. He said, hey, time has come. Man, we need to build some tabernacles. We need to build a tabernacle for Jesus. And we need to build a tabernacle for Moses. And we need to build a tabernacle for Elijah. And and he said, hey, it's time to build these tabernacles because the time has come. You see, Peter thought this was tabernacles. Peter thought that this was God dwelling with man. The time has come. The time is now. Jesus is coming. He's bringing his kingdom now. We're going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to set up his temporal kingdom. It's going to happen right now. And God said, no. No, Peter, that's that's not the plan. We're not going to build tabernacles. We're not going to dwell here. We're not going to stay on this mountain. We got to come off the mountain. Let me tell you something, Christian. The mountain for Christian is a wonderful place to be. And maybe you've experienced being on the mountain in your Christian life before. Man, being you can be on the mountain, man, when you first get saved. Man, when you just, when you, you give your life to Christ and you've, 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 you have that guilt taken off of you and you just feel so free in the grace of the Lord and you're just so filled up with zeal for the Lord and you're so happy that you've been redeemed and the, the world and sin is, your sin is forgiven. And man, when you first get saved, maybe you just feel like, man, this is just an awesome feeling and, and you're just ready to charge hell with a squirt gun and you're just ready to go. Maybe you feel on top of the mountain when the Lord answers a prayer. 
when you've been praying for something and praying for something and praying for something and against all odds, against all the doctors and against all what your family says and all what your friend says, God comes through in a miraculous way and He answers that prayer and you just feel like you're on the mountaintop. Maybe you're on the mountaintop when you get a victory when you've been fighting this battle in your life and every day you fought this battle and every year you fought this battle and who knows how long you've been fighting this battle. Maybe you've been fighting this battle for decades and then God gives you victory and you don't have to fight that battle anymore. And man, in your Christian life, you just feel like, man, you're on top of the mountain. And you think to yourself, man, I, I don't want to go back down in the valley. I want to stay up here. Man, because up on the, my, my, my troubles are down in the valley. I don't want to go down there. My trials are down in the valley. My pain is down in the valley. Uh, my problems are down there. I don't want to go back down. To the, I don't want to go back down there. I want to stay on the mountain. But Christian, let me tell you something. You have to come off the mountain. You want to know why? You want to know why Christians can't stay on the mountain? Here's why. Because there's nobody to help on the mountain. There's nobody to help. There's nobody for you to help up here on the mountain. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a good place to rest. It's a good time to relax. It's a good time to remotivate, to recharge, to get zeal for God, to move forward, to make a plan. Man, it's, it's good to enjoy, but there's nobody on the mountain for you to help. The valley, the valley's where the rubber meets the road. See, down in the valley, down the valley is where you help people. Down in the valley is, is where you minister to people. Too many Christians today, they just want mountaintop religion. They just want mountaintop religion. They don't want valley religion because they don't want to get dirty. I heard a preacher give an illustration one time and he was talking about a newsletter that he read from a big mega church. On one side of the newsletter it said, Praise the Lord, we just raised $23 million for our new auditorium. State of the art. Okay. On the other side of the newsletter it said, Praise the Lord, we raised for missions in the Congo $5,000. You understand that it take it take you five thousand dollars to hire a plane to fly to the Congo. That 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 is that real that money is really nothing. But too many people want mountaintop religion. They don't want to come down in the valley because they don't want to help people. But see, that's that's discipleship. Your religion. Your spirituality, your relationship with Christ, it has to make sense on the mountaintop and in the valley. It has to make place in both places. If your religion only makes sense on the mountaintop, you do not have pure religion. You have a false religion. It has to make place and make sense in both places. Okay, that is part of discipleship. 
So the disciples come off the mountain, and when they come off this mountain, they're going to get some hard lessons. They're going to get some hard lessons when they come down into what I call the valley of ego. The disciples and maybe thought that they had arrived. Now that they had saw this transfiguration, they thought that they were just spiritual giants. But Christ is about to show them their own self-centeredness is preventing them from true discipleship. Now let me say this also. The disciples did not arrive the day they committed to Christ. They didn't arrive. They didn't instantly become the disciples they were supposed to be the day they committed to follow Christ. No, 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 no. You're gonna read, we're going to go through Luke 9, and you're going to see for sure they didn't arrive. They didn't have all the answers to the questions the day they decided to follow Jesus. Now let me say, we will never have the answers to all the questions, but one day hopefully you'll have more answers than you did at the beginning. Okay, But you don't get to that point overnight. It takes time. It takes time. What we're going to find as we go through Luke 9 that Jesus had told the disciples to deny themselves and they're doing a very poor job of it. In fact, in fact, she's preaching with me. In fact, in Luke 9, what the disciples go through is very cringeworthy. It's, it's almost embarrassing. I see something embarrassing on TV. I have to close, I have to close my eyes. I have to put my fingers in my ears. I just can't, I can't watch it, and my wife knows this. That's just how I am. I have to go in the next room. I can't stand to see somebody embarrassed. And this is, she laughs because she knows I'm speaking truth. This whole chapter is just kind of cringeworthy when it comes to the disciples. And Jesus kind of almost feels like he's running a daycare here. And let me make this statement. The greatest threat to your discipleship is your own ego. It's the greatest threat. The greatest threat to you being a true disciple of Christ is your own ego, our own self-centeredness. And what I have this morning is I have three false concerns, concerns that the disciples had that Jesus said, you don't need to be concerned about that. You don't need to be concerned about that. These are false, fake concerns. You need to leave that behind if you want to follow me. So I've got three false concerns that we need to drop if we want to be a true disciple of Christ. Concern number one is we need to not be concerned with a rebellious role. A rebellious role. Let's look in verse 37. On the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams and throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. 
And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. So a man comes to Jesus. Jesus, I need your help. I need you to help me with my son. He's possessed by a demon. This demon, it mauls at him. It torments him. It tortures him. Please, you have to help me. I I, I begged your disciples to help me, but they could not cast out the demon. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What? The disciples of the Messiah? The disciples of Jesus Christ could not cast out this demon? Why not? Jesus had gave them the ability to do it. In fact, in the very same chapter, in verse number 1, it says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons. In the same chapter, he gave them this ability. What gives? Mark 6.13 says, And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So in their mission to other villages, we know they've cast out demons before. Why couldn't they cast out this demon? Could it be that after they come off the Mount of Transfiguration, some of them thought that they were just had arrived and that they were just spiritual giants and that they, you know, is that the reason? Maybe. But why couldn't they do it? Let me tell you something. I read commentary after commentary after commentary on this. And most of them all say the same thing. Well, we don't particularly know why the disciples on this occasion could not cast out this demon. We really don't know. And I think to myself, you know, you know what the best commentary on the Bible is? The Bible. You know, if you read the verse, the verse tells us why the disciples weren't able to cast out the demon. It read verse 41. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? That's why they couldn't do it. They were unbelieving and perverse. Now let's talk about these two words. Unbelieving just goes to their faithlessness. They had a lack of faith, weak faith. Well, they didn't have faith in their own ability. They had faith in their own efforts, but they didn't have faith in Christ's ability. They didn't have faith in Christ's efforts. And then the second word, in this New American, it says the word perverted. Your version might say a different word, but it's all the same Greek word, diastropho. And it's the same word that we get uh, disaster from. But in this context, this word, it means to distort, to misinterpret, to corrupt, and it means to be rebellious. So why couldn't they do it? Because they lacked faith 
And they were rebellious against what Jesus told them to do. And what did Jesus tell them to do? Jesus told them to deny themselves and they weren't doing it. They were looking at their own ability and what they could do. They had weak faith and they rebelled against the words of Christ. I worked in the oil change industry for 15 years. I, man, I trained a lot of people. I know, uh, you know, I know some shortcuts like that. This is that State Farm commercial. I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. And I know some shortcuts how to get these filters out. And they got this little elbow that you put into a socket and you put the extension in the elbow and you can go at an angle. And, you, and I've shown guys some, some, some shortcuts on how to get these filters out. Man, they see the shortcut. They say, man, that's pretty cool. I'd have never thought to do that. And so I saw them. Now, you can do this some of the times, but, but, but most of the time, but sometimes there's some filters come in that you have to, you have to like do it a different way. Like, for instance, there's this one car. It's, it's uh, one of the new te- Chrysler Town and Countries. It's a 3.6 liter engine. It doesn't have a metal screw-on filter. It's got a paper insert cartridge filter. And in order to change that oil filter, you have to take the air filter housing off. You have to unclip it. You have to lift it up. It's the only way to do it. If you try to use my little elbow trick, you're going to be there a minute. And you tell, you tell these guys this, and you stay them, you train them. So I'm the trainer, listen to me. Now, you stay over here, and I'm going to go work over here, and if you need me, I'll, I'll be over there to help. And this van will come in, and I'll see them go to the tool ba- toolbox and grab the elbow. And I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> We're going to be here a minute. And so then they go over there and they try and they struggle and they can't get it. And eventually I walk over there and it's, man, I just can't get this. And it's like, you didn't listen to me. You can't do it your way. You have to do it the way I showed you. You have to take the air filter housing off. And I, I take the air filter housing off. And say, oh, I didn't know it. Yes, you did. I showed you. You see, they're not the trainer. I'm the trainer. They need to listen to what I'm trying to tell them. They don't need to step in to my role. You're not the trainer. I am. Now, the reason why I give that illustration is because I want to show you that we cannot be an effective disciple if we try to step into Christ's role. We, we, We can't do it. We fail when we try to do it by our own effort. And sometimes when we do it in our own effort, we may say that we're doing it in the name of Christ, but deep down we are not because we are unbelieving and we're rebelling against His Word. Jesus told the disciples to deny themselves. They weren't doing that. They were puffed up in their pride. They were puffed up in their arrogance. They were puffed up in their self-centeredness. And because they didn't listen to the words of Christ, they're sinning. When you go against the commands of the Bible, what is that called? It is called sin. So their weak faith allowed sin in their life, and that is why they could not do what God had called them to do. They had allowed sin into their life. And that sometimes, and that most of the time, is why we fail at the Christian life. It's because we allow sin in, and then we wonder why we fail at the Christian life. We wonder why. You see, 
this, this battle against Satan is real. It is a real ongoing struggle. And the victory over sin and temptation, it only comes through Christ. But the problem is we don't trust him enough. We don't pray to him. We don't ask him for help. We don't allow, we, instead we allow sin in our lives that pushes a wedge between us and Christ. And then we wonder why we fail. Why do I, why do I fail so much in the Christian life? Because your faith is weak and you let sin in. Your faith is weak and you let sin in your life. That sin is keeping you from doing what God's called you to do. And that's why you fail at the Christian. That's why we, I'm going to say you, we, I'm in this too. That's why we fail at the Christian life. We have weak faith. We try to do it on our own ability, our own efforts. We don't go to him. We get self-centered and we let sin in. Lack of faith in Christ allows sin in your life and that's why we fail. So the disciples' first concern was this rebellious role. Then the next thing we see they wanted, I'm going to call it a rich rank. And what I mean by that is they wanted a high position. Let's read verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God, but while everyone was marveling at all he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink in your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they're afraid to ask him about this statement. Man, talk about a, dropping a bomb. Jesus was, Jesus was really good at dropping bombs, man. He could drop a bomb with the best of them. And this is actually the second time that he told the disciples that he was going to die. And what was the result of this? Well, on the one hand, the sovereignty of God kept it hid from them. But as we all know, in the sovereignty of God, we're still responsible for our own free will. And so the disciples, they knew that Jesus was, uh, was temporal. Uh, they knew that Jesus, uh, uh, in their mind, Jesus was thought of as an earthly king. Um, and just no one asked them about the statement. They just ignored it. They glossed over it. And then they started arguing among themselves who was the greatest. Can you imagine that? Man, Jesus just told them he's about to die. And then they start arguing over who's greater than who. Verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. You know, sometimes you read what the disciples do, and you, oh, you just got to shake your head and just, man, disciples, what are you doing you know, this, you know, you read through Scripture and this was a common argument amongst them. They argued on more than several occasions about who was going to be greater 
in the Lord's kingdom. And really, I think it kind of goes back to their Jewish background. You see, Judaism at the time had become a religion all about the preeminence. Judaism had become a religion of how... How can I stand out? How flashy can I look? How nice can my clothes be? Uh, can I sit at the head of the table? If I can't sit at the head of the table, how close can I get to sitting at the head of the table? And you see, they wanted Jesus to set up his earthly temporal kingdom right then. That's what they were expecting him to do. And now they're arguing over who's going to be his vice president. And Jesus being omniscient God, Jesus being the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, he knew what they were thinking. And instead of saying, hey, dummies, I'm the greatest, uh, he calls a child over. Now, children in that day were considered property. Children were considered very, very low on the social ladder. But the thing is, Jesus never thought that way. For Jesus, children were always held in high regard, in high respect. In fact, Jesus said, whoever hurts these children, uh, it would be better for you that a millstone be hung about your neck and you thrown into the deepest part of the sea. Jesus always held children in high regard. He always spoke very highly of them. And believe it or not, a child is a good example of a disciple. Now, when you have your first child, usually the first one comes out, he's shy, he's reserved, he's an introvert. And then your second child is the wild child. I mean, for most people, that's the way it is. The second one is just a holy terror and just wild and extrovert. And I remember when Caleb uh, was, was small, he could not meet a stranger. He would go up and talk to everybody. And on more than one occasion, I wish that I had the boldness that he had. And the thing about children is children are non-threatening. They're non-threatening. If I meet Caleb in a dark alley, I think I can take him, okay? Uh, but children, children are non-threatening. And also, children... Uh, when they're little, it's very hard for children to deceive someone. Usually, when a small child lies, mom and dad can pick up on it. And they know, oh, something's not right here. Now, unfortunately, the older they get and the uglier they get, the easier it is for them to lie to mom and dad. Um, but uh, they, they, get, they get better at it. But you know what? Children are also innocent. Now, when I say innocent, I don't mean naive, but I mean innocent. The other day, we're at the bookstore. Caleb comes up to me and he says, Dad, I need to use the, the restroom. And I said, it's under the exit sign in the back in the corner. I, he said, okay. So he goes. He comes back to me a few moments, a few moments later. I hear a tap on my, I feel a tap on my back and I turn around. It's Caleb. And he's like, Dad, I, I don't know which one to go in. And the reason why is there were unisex bathrooms. On one side, you had a man and a woman. 
on the other side, you had a man and a woman. Now, that told me a couple of things. Number one, it told me, I think I'm doing a, I hope, I think I'm telling me I'm doing a good job training my kid for him to know that there's something up with that. There's something not right about that. There's something, something not quite right about that. So I'm happy in that regard. And the other thing is that tells us it's a sad commentary on our society that we have to do that. We have to do it that way so we don't offend people. And then uh, the third thing is, is it shows for me the innocence of a child. And Jesus says, I want you to be as children, not only to be saved. We know we have to be as children to be saved, but I need to be as a child to be a disciple of Christ. We are to welcome like a child and we're to become like a child. Let's look at that first one, welcome like a child. Jesus, Jesus is showing us that our greatness is dependent upon our care and concern for others. Let me ask you a question. How much care, love, and concern do you show for other people? Let me take it a step further. How much love, care, and concern do you show for people who can't return that love, care, and concern? Let's take it a step even further. How much love, care, and concern do you have for people who could return it but choose not to? You want to measure greatness? That's greatness. Greatness is measured in sacrifice. Greatness is measured in self-denial. And the next thing, we're to become like a child. Matthew shows the other side of this conversation in Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says to us, he says, I want you to be least. I want you to be at the back of the line. I want you to be the last one at the party. I want you to be the bottom of the totem pole. I want you to be on the bottom of the list. I want you to be the last name that's called out. If you have a choice, don't even let your name be called out for a Christian, for a disciple. I want the thought of rank and position and title to be completely foreign to you. Now look, those things in and of themselves are not wrong. It's not wrong to have rank, position, or title. It's wrong as a disciple for you to seek them. Instead, lift up others. Help others. Promote others. Give others help. Give others title. Give others rank. Give others position. Sacrifice your time for others. Love others. Pray for others. How much of our day... How much of our week is committed to other people? Is our life just consumed with ourselves? You want to be a disciple of Christ? What are you doing for other people? Are you just taking in and taking in and taking in and you never give anything out? 
How much do we care about other people? When's the last time we did something for other people? And we go to work, we come home, we eat supper, rinse and repeat. That's all we do. Man, we can't find time in that week to help somebody else. Love others. Sacrifice for others. He's saying, don't seek a rebellious role or rich rank. Finally, he says, don't seek a restricted recognition. Don't seek a restricted recognition. Let's look at verse 40 of chapter 9. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Now, I don't know about Jesus, but if I was Jesus, this would be about the time I would start beating my head up against a wall. My mom used to say, you're driving me up a slick wall, Brett. That was her, you're driving me up a slick wall. And if I was Jesus, I'd be, I'd be driven up a slick wall right about now because it's just like the disciples just aren't getting it. They're not getting it. But before we continue, let me add, we got to ask ourselves a question. When was the last time God had to tell us something more than once? So before we judge them and their moat, let's look at our beam. When's the last time God had to tell us something over and over and over again? And we can uh, convicted of this sin and we leave it behind. And a week later, we go back and we pick it up again. How many times has that happened? So let's think about that before we judge the disciples too much on this. Um, going to the next verse, verse 50. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him. For he who is not against you is for you. No doubt, the disciples of Jesus Christ were green with envy. They were red with jealousy. Man, they were envious. They were jealous because they were the disciples of the Messiah. They could not cast out demons, but this guy could. And he doesn't even follow us. He's not even part of our group. He doesn't even follow uh, Jesus like we follow Jesus, but he's casting out demons. So they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, um, this guy doesn't have the authority to cast out demons. He doesn't follow along with us. He doesn't have the authority to do that. They didn't care about, his, they, they didn't care about that guy's authority. They didn't want to get their egos bruised. They didn't want to get their little feelings hurt. They were throwing themselves a little pity party. They didn't want to get embarrassed. That's why they wanted the guy to stop. And isn't it funny who's spearheading this thing? John, the disciple of love, is spearheading this thing, trying to shut this guy down and doing the work for God just because he's doing it a little different. And, uh, man, John is a disciple of love. In fact, in 1 John, 1 John gives us the two tests for somebody's ministry. It's the test of morals, and it's the test of doctrine. This guy over here, he passes both those tests, but they still want to shut him down because of his group affiliation. Now listen, 
Part of my testimony is I grew up in a super hyper fundamentalist world that I'm not in anymore. Now, I feel I have to define that just a little bit. That doesn't mean that I don't believe in the fundamentals of the faith anymore. That's not what that means. I still believe in the fundamentals of the faith. I still believe in the virgin birth and the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe in the deity of Christ, the priesthood of the believer, that salvation is by grace through faith alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. I still believe in the fundamentals of the faith. So don't get confused when I say things like that. But in my little fundamentalist world that I was in, we separated from absolutely everything. Now look, the Bible says you're supposed to separate from the world. You're supposed to separate from sin. But we were actually separating from other Christians. That's what we were doing. When the Bible calls the Pharisees separatists, that's what they were doing. They weren't just separating from the things that were wrong. They were separating from things that there was nothing wrong with. Okay, and so uh, we were we were just we were just separate from uh, separate ourselves from other Christians to the point where if you didn't go to a church exactly like ours, you were wrong. You were wrong. If you didn't go to a church exactly like ours, go to a Southern Baptist church. They wasn't allowed to go to no Southern Baptist church. Them Southern Baptists are sending people to hell with their perverted versions of the Bible. Look at me up here with a new American. I'm so proud. Just kidding. But, but listen. But, but that's wrong. Man, if you're not exactly like us, then you can't be right at all. That is wrong. There's nothing right about that. Even mainstream Baptist churches, we get into this mindset sometimes that we're in competition against each other. And we get this idea that we're in competition with the Baptist church down the street. I'm here to tell you today, I'm not. I'm not in a competition against Spring Creek. I'm not in a competition against Friendship. I'm not in a competition against Mount Nebo. I am absolutely not. Man, if they're bringing people to Christ, praise the Lord. If God moves someone from another, then God moves people. If God moves somebody from another church to this church, I'm not going to call the preacher up and go, nah, 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 nah. I'm not going to do that. But then if, somebody, if God moves somebody from this church somewhere else, I'll be disappointed but I'm not going to write out a 95 scathing letter thesis letter to the church and send it to them. I'm, I'm not going to do that because we're not in competition. But man, we're human, aren't we? Our pride gets hurt when other people succeed and we don't. Our pride gets hurt. And Jesus is trying to teach the disciples, look, we are in a spiritual war and there is no time for jealousy in the ranks. There is no time, no room for jealousy. If someone who's not in your group brings someone to Christ, rejoice in it. You know, just rejoice in it. 
If a church down the road has more in vacation Bible school than you do, praise Jesus. I am glad those kids got to go to church and hear the Bible taught to them and get taught the Word of God and given the Gospel. I'm happy for them. I'm happy for that. That's what we're trying to do. If another church has a nicer building than you, praise God. Look what God can do. Even if they don't have Baptist on the sign. Man, if they're getting people saved, praise Jesus. Even if somebody doesn't believe just like you do on the end times. Man, that person doesn't believe the rapture before the tribulation. We can't fellowship. No, that's not how it's supposed to be. Drop your ego. Drop your pride. It's the only way to be a true disciple of Christ. The founder of the Salvation Army was a man by the name of William Booth. William Booth had a second son. His name was Bollington Booth. Bollington Booth had worked his way up and become general over the Salvation Army. In 1908, Bollington Booth sent out a message to every Salvation Army post in the world. And the message was one word, others. There was an ex-lawyer who had named Charles Mingus who had left his law practice to work in the ministry full-time. He saw this message and he got inspired to write a poem. That poem was later turned in and published as a song. And the words to the poem go like this. Lord, help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Let self be crucified and slain and buried deep and all in vain. May efforts to be rise again, except to live for others. So when my work on earth is done and my new work in heaven's begun, I'll praise you for the crown I've won and praise you more for others. And the chorus goes like this. Yes, others, Lord, yes, others. This my, this my motto be. Help me live for others. Help me live for others. That I may live like thee. That I may live like thee. The disciples came off the mountaintop into the valley. And they became face to face with their own ego. And Jesus met them and said, No. If you want to be my disciple, you have to leave your ego behind. You have to leave your pride behind. You have to leave your self-centeredness behind if you want to be my disciple. You can't do it through your own effort. You can't do it through your own ability. And when you try to do it through your own effort, you allow sin in, and then I can't work through you if you allow sin in your life. Don't lift up yourself. Don't lift up and seek your own position. Seek others' position. Lift other people up. Don't lift up yourself. And don't be jealous of others. Be joyful in others. Because we're on the same team. Discipleship is about 
others. It's about sacrifice. It's about self-denial. It's about dropping your pride, letting go of your ego, and simply living for Jesus and others. Putting yourself last, and that gives you joy. Let's pray.